coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 3rd of July, 2022. Patience, kindness, goodness. We are in the midst of a study about the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. As we said before, he's talking about one fruit. He's not talking about fruits of the Spirit, just one fruit, one manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in us. When the Holy Spirit is at work in us, these things will be seen in us. That's the way it works. We have talked about this because to try and live the Christian life apart from the Spirit is fruitless, literally fruitless. And so we are told in John chapter 15 that we're to abide in Christ And then we're told, then, as we abide in Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in our life, these qualities will manifest themselves. Last week, we looked at the first three, love, joy, peace. And of course, you remember the definitions I gave you. So just write them down on the 3 by 5 card and we'll have a test. (laughs) No. Okay. We said that love is an unconquerable benevolence, always looking to do something good for someone else, always investing in others. That's what love is. It is the high point here if we're going to focus on one element of the fruit of the Spirit, love would be it in its first. The second one is joy. We mentioned a little bit in Sunday school again today what it is. It is the pleasurable reflection of our relationship in Christ. In other words, when things don't seem to be going good, we might be unhappy, but we can still be joyful. Why? Because our focus is on the Lord, who he is, what he's done for us. And that brings us joy. Third word was peace. The tranquility of the soul in the midst of the storms of life. When we're faced with troubles and issues in our life, it says peace is what God himself grants to a believer. And as you can see, there's a theme sort of developing here. And that is these qualities of, of the Spirit's work in the heart and life of a believer often show best when things are not going well. When the world would be faced with an issue that would give them grief, they have to fall back on their own resources. And as a believer, we fall back on our relationship with the Lord and the resources that he has given to us, namely 
the Spirit, and the Spirit then manifests these qualities in the life of a believer. So we want to look at three more today, and we begin with patience. Patience. My wife looked at my notes today, and I've got four pages of notes here, and she goes, you do remember that it is the first Sunday and we have the Lord's Supper and you're going to try and get through four pages of notes? I said, just watch me. Actually, I didn't say that so much as I said, this is a holiday weekend. They've got another whole day's worth. So, actually, the, the Greek word is a very interesting word. It's macrothemia. And macro having to do with great or large, and thumia having to do with passion or anger, those kind of things. And we're to have patience. I've talked about this word before, like when we've gone through uh, the qualities of love, because it is the first one that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. It is a word that speaks to someone who might be upset with somebody else, but doesn't manifest the anger, but holds it back and holds it back and sometimes pushes it away. That's the idea of something great. And I thought about how we talk about Patience, because sometimes it's translated like long-suffering as well. And, and those kind of words sound sort of, well, you just got to put up with stuff. You just got to put up with stuff. But to me, that always seemed like a, a negative thing. You just got to grin and bear it and have to swallow it. And No, I think it's something completely different. And so this is my own little twist on that. And I believe that it's the idea of a persistent passion for others, especially when provoked. Persistent passion for others. It is one that's in there for the long haul because they desire to see in that person a quality that only God could give them. And so they want to stick with that person until they see what you see. I believe it is one of the greatest elements of evangelism for that, for that matter. Because you might be rebuffed as someone shares, a, as you share the gospel, somebody goes, I don't want to hear you. That's that religious stuff. And you go, it's not a religion religious stuff. It is a relationship with Christ, and I think you would really prosper. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. And you go, well, I'm just going to write them off. No. Patience says, I don't care if you push me away. I know this is so valuable. I'm going to persist. And so I'm going to be, have a persistent passion for you, especially when rebuffed or reproved or provoked. 
Negatively, it's the idea of withholding anger. Positively, it is the persistent passion. And there's lots of passages here, and this is what my wife didn't know when I was preparing this, is I gave you these passages, not because we'd be looking at all of them, but just so that you would have a fuller outline than what I can share in the time that we have here, that if you wanted to do some further examination, you could. We have some illustrations, some examples of this in uh, these passages, and I'll give these two to you. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to his young son in the faith. And in 1 Timothy 1, he talks about his own uh, experience with the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ confronted Paul uh, with his need for a Savior. In verse uh, 15 and 16, Paul writes these words. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, um, uh, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, God has shown me patience and he, he persistently pursued Paul until Paul came to know Jesus Christ as a savior. And Paul writes down, he says, I'm just a shining example of the fact that God didn't give up on me, but that God pursued me even when I persecuted the church, even when I went after his people, he came after me until I came to know him. And he says, and I believe that he did so, so that somebody else would say, well, I don't know, probably God has given up on me, but he hasn't. I shared with you before that uh, I've talked to individuals and they go, oh, you don't know me. And I go, probably not. No, I don't. They said, you don't know what kind of sinner I am. And I said, I know what kind of sinner I am. And I go, but God loved you so much to send his son for you. How can you say that you're too wicked a sinner if Jesus Christ was willing to come and die for you? Well, I can't believe in that. I, I, I just can't accept that he would forgive me. But yes, the whole idea behind patience is that it seeks the best for someone else. And when it comes to salvation, it, it is persistent for the purpose of bringing about repentance and forgiveness of sin. Maybe you're familiar with this passage, and it usually comes up in the context of uh, someone who comes to Jesus Christ 
late in life. I invite you to turn to 2 Peter, if you have your Bible there. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing, and he's talking about, uh, well, he's actually talking about creation and the flood and some of those kind of things. And then he gets down to verse 9. Well, we like verse 8. It says, do not overlook this fact, uh, beloved, that one with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. We've heard that passage lots of times. But it's in the context of this next verse. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some count slowness, but is patient, and there's the word, toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So for a person who says, ah, you know, what about the person who comes to Christ literally on their deathbed? He says, why would God put up with that all their life and then save them on their deathbed? And the answer is because he's not slack concerning his promise. He has patience toward them. His desire for them is that they would come to repentance. That's why he's persistent in, in his passion towards them. And that's the nature of patience. My illustration, and I've shared it before, but it's appropriate here, is the story of my own sister. My sister, as most of you know, but maybe not all of you know, um, was raised in the same home that I was raised in. We were taken to church before we ever even knew that we were going there. <laughs> we were so young. And then raised in Sunday school and church and those kind of things. And Mom and dad were believers and they would share the faith with us and we did Bible reading and those kind of things together. And when my sister got to high school and then finished up high school, she was out of there. She didn't want anything to do with any of this stuff. And she went on the road and that was back in the days of Haight-Ashbury and, and all those kind of things, not a good environment. And we wouldn't even know where she was for a long time. She might call after eight or nine months and said, well, my sleeping bag got too close to the fire and burned, and can you send me a new one? And we go, oh, you're alive. You know? And then she would say, send it to, and then we'd find out where she was, South Dakota, General Post Office Box, whatever. And then she'd drop off the radar again. Then time went by and she finally got back east and got into a commune for a while and, and finally she got more on her radar. We knew where she was. And she started dialoguing with my sister Peggy. Peggy's a believer and they would have these marathon conversations by phone. Two, three hours. And, and my sister Terry would just pepper her with all these kind of questions. How can you believe that? How can you believe this? On and on. And Peggy would try and answer the best she could. 
Terry was upset about multiple things. But she wasn't having anything to do with the faith at all. Peggy was persistent. She was patient with her sister and kept sharing with her the faith and her need to get right with the Lord. Terry, no. Terry got married. Terry had a daughter, ended up getting divorced after a while, raising the daughter on her own. And she was one that wasn't adverse to drinking and being involved in drugs and those kinds of things. And it caught up with her and, and uh, she had to go into the hospital um, with cirrhosis of the liver. And uh, Peggy was continuing to talk to her by phone. And she had an opportunity to go out and, and visit Terry. And we didn't know exactly how bad it was. And she went to visit Terry. And she walked into the room. And Terry turned to my sister and go, well, I did it. And Peggy goes, you did what? I don't know what you're talking about. She says, uh, I did it. I became a believer. And Peggy, recounting it afterwards, she says, I just about fell over, but I wasn't sure that I heard her right either. And so she questioned Terry about it, and she said, yes, I've been thinking about all this, and I came to put my hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Peggy asked her, she says, have you shared with Jasmine? That was her daughter. And uh, have you shared with Jasmine? Have you told her what you've done? Because Jasmine had been raised in this home that was very anti-God anything. And he said, did you tell your daughter? He says, no. As soon as I get out, and she was due to transfer out of that facility into sort of a, a halfway house, go-between medical place. And she says, as soon as I get out, I'll, I'll get Jasmine in here and we'll talk about it. And so Peggy returned home, and of course, she shared it with the family, and we were all rejoicing. Terry had a turn for the worst and passed away. So Jasmine never did hear from her mom about coming to know the Lord. And we were, Peggy got to wondering, did I imagine all this? Did it, did it really happen? Did she really get her heart to Jesus? And she sort of got to the place where she was even questioning her own memory. You, you never have any problems with that. Again. Anyway, she was having problems with that. And she had an opportunity sometime later to, try, to go back and I think Jasmine, I don't remember if it was when Jasmine was getting married or just another visit to visit Jasmine. Anyway, she went back and she met up with Paula Sternberg. Now, Paula Sternberg was a gal that my sister Terry had grown up with and, and they had similar viewpoints on life and they had been in communes together. They had, they hadn't always traveled together, but 
she was also back on the East Coast, and, and when Peggy was back there, she ran into Paula. And she was talking uh, with Paula and trying to share the faith with Paula. And Paula said, well, you, you know, Terry told me she got saved. And that was sort of the reaction my sister had. Just dead silence. Paula told Peggy that Terry had gotten saved, which meant that Terry had to tell Paula. That had to be profound in itself because here Paula had been her buddy in, in drugs and alcohol and all those kind of stuff and for her to tell her that her life had been changed because of Jesus Christ and she had put her hope in Jesus Christ that was a big thing and Peggy came home after that visit and she was just celebrating that what she had heard was actually in fact what had happened if Terry was willing to share with Paula that thing must have been real why do I share that story? Because Terry lived a long time refusing the Lord. But the Lord was persistent in his passion towards her. And literally brought her to himself almost on her deathbed. Why? Because he loved her. And was persistent in his passion. That's what patience is. That's what patience is. The second word that we're going to look at, also found in this passage, is uh, the word kindness. Now, I'll tell you this. It's good to be able to study in the original language because you get to look at words and you get to see different things. But sometimes it messes with your head. Why? Because this word and the next word are often used interchangeably in Scripture, and especially when it gets to the translation of the word in our English text, this word is sometimes translated as kindness, sometimes translated as goodness. But if you look at the next word, the next word is goodness. So that can cause some confusion. I'm going to try as best I can to separate those two so you can see the nuances in these words for helpful for our understanding. This word that we're looking at in, in our passage in Galatians has to do with kindness. In, in the Greek culture, this word, well, they didn't have marshmallow back in that time. But this would have been a marshmallow word. In other words, it's soft. It's, it's not harsh at all. It is the word to be kind. It was sometimes translated sweetness. Sometimes seen as something that was mellow, not in the sense of spoiling, but something that was just easy. 
something to get along with. And so I've given you a definition. Kindness is the gentle goodness that is seen as warm and inviting. Okay? And he says, this is a quality of the spirit in the life of a believer. And it is that idea that not only God would have this kindness towards us, but that we would have this kindness towards one another. I'd invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 11. I want to at least point out this passage. In Romans chapter 11, Paul, you can remember from our study in Romans 11, those that were here, Anyway, you can remember that he was talking in chapters 9, 10, and 11 about the Jewish question and God's dealing with the Jews, his chosen people, and whether or not they were all followers of his or not. And we come to this verse in chapter 11 and verse 22. He says, Note then, the kindness and severity of God. And it's good because these two give us a contrast. Kindness on the one side, severity on the other. What does he say? Severity towards those who have fallen, those who had fallen away, those who had, had turned. Uh, he said, there's, God is severe. And he says, and God's kindness to you. What does he mean there? He says, provided you continue in his kindness. In other words, God's desire is to envelop you, to show his tender care for you. Again, this word sort of points to those elements that have to do with our relationship, obviously, with God, but a lot of times towards that introduction of salvation and again repentance. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When you think about it for a moment, if we have sinned against God, against God, and God is a righteous God and a righteous judge, how could he treat us? He could treat us with justice and severity. Could do that. But what did he do? He sent his son. Why? Because he wanted to treat us with kindness. He wanted us to come to the place where we came to know him and repented of our sins and got right with him. And so scripture uses this great word of kindness towards us. We're commanded to live this way. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, God has shown his kindness to us. Well, there's other passages, but I want to move on to the third word for today, and that's the word goodness. And as I said, the word goodness is oftentimes interchangeably translated with the word kindness that we just examined. And so I want to draw a distinction between the two. This one has to do with something that is, are you ready? Good. There you go. Thanks, Pastor. That was so life-inspiring. No, it is the idea of the expression of doing what is right, something virtuous. Now, we know that you can do something that's good that won't be warm and enveloping. Jesus Christ sometimes did things that didn't seem very warm and welcoming. And you look at what he had to say to the religious leaders, and he called them on the carpet. He did what was good. He did what was right. He did what was virtuous. That's the idea behind this word of goodness. But it wasn't very soft and tender like our previous word. Soft and tender is found in the word for kindness. This goodness is more an expression of God's virtue. Jesus, when he was teaching in Luke chapter 6, said this, a good person, and this idea of goodness, then is found in this passage, a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. In other words, a person who is virtuous and lives a virtuous life is going to de demonstrate that in virtuous actions, does those things which are good. But the comparison then is to someone who is evil. He says the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so we have this contrast between good, which is virtuous, and evil, which is not. And God says that the fruit of the Spirit is good. So there is a link there, an inseparable link, to what is right when we talk about what is good. I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, to the first chapter. And we want to look at a story that's well familiar to you. And we can see something good and something that, as we have already said, is not just good, but is kind. Okay? To do what is good is to do what is right. And we come across this story that comes out of our Christmas season. And in Matthew, the first chapter, it says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ 
took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, the picture of how a Jewish um, wedding and a relationship worked is there would be a commitment, there would be a period of time, and then there would be the final union, and this in-between time would be a betrothal period. It was more than our engagement, but less than full marriage. Okay? And we have the situation. Mary is expecting. Joseph knows the kid isn't his. What does he do? If he is just, if he does what is good, he will act in a righteous manner. What was, what was the provision? He could call her out. He could point his finger and said, that's not my kid. And she would have been stoned to death. That was an option completely within the sphere of doing something that's right. But Joseph didn't also do what was right. He also did what was kind. And it says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, doing what is right, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There you see the heart of Joseph. He is both virtuous in his goodness, wanting to do what is right, but also kind in his expression to his betrothed, not wanting to make a public thing of her, not to see her punished for this, willing to put her away privately, and that would be the least consequence for Mary. Of course, we know the story that the angel appeared to, to Joseph in a dream and told him what the true skinny was, that this child was from the Holy Spirit, and even told him to uh, name the son Jesus, Savior. And that's exactly what Joseph did. So we see some illustrations then of this idea of macrothemia, that patience, that willing to hang in there to see somebody uh, come to grasp truth and make it their own. We see the idea of, of uh, kindness, where a person then wants what's good for somebody and treats them in a kind way. And then not to avoid truth, but to act in a virtuous way, doing those things that are good. All these are qualities of a life of a believer who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. And as we said, several of these words 
point right to the steps that are involved in reconciliation, redemption, uh, forgiveness of sin. That a believer can be involved in this process by demonstrating these qualities to others. And when God calls us to be ministers of reconciliation, he uses the tools that he has given to us and all of these things are manifest in us through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life so that when we live out these things, they are as powerful a testimony as any words that we use. You wouldn't want to buy hair restorer from me. Right? If I said, I've got the greatest product here, I use it daily, and you can have a full head of hair, you're going to go, no. <laughs> no, thank you. So when we start talking about Jesus Christ and what he can do in the life, and we need to demonstrate. They need to see that's in our life as well so that our words have some meaning. They aren't as hollow as my shilling for some hair tonic. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. So now we've looked at six of these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit and the life. That's what he's called us to. In a moment, we are going to share the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. And what we have under this cloth is two elements, some broken unleavened bread and some grape juice and fruit of the vine. And they speak to us of Jesus Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. We're going to have the men come and pass the elements and whether you're a member of our church or not, that's not the point. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because this is the Lord's table. It's not Woodland Baptist Church table. And so we invite you to participate. The men are going to come and pass the elements. Hold on to them. We'll give you the signal and we'll partake together. The only warning that's given to us is that we would do it in a worthy manner. In other words, we'd be focused on the Savior. That we would say, without the reality of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on my behalf and me receiving the gift of salvation by faith, this means nothing but crackers and juice. What's the significance is, is for the life of the believer when they realize that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was given on our behalf and that it cost the Son of God his life so that we might have life. And as we've often said, the innocent for the guilty. So we're going to give you a few moments of prayer and then we're going to share the elements and we'll give you instructions as we go. And like I said, whether you're a member of our congregation or not, it's not the point. It's whether you know Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, we'd be happy to talk to you about him. Happy to share with you uh, 
what we have come to know is true and right. Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who didn't deserve any of the kindness that you have shown us. Any of mercy. Any of the grace. Any of the love. But you have loved us with an everlasting love. And that love was just not a thought. Not just a consideration. But something that moved you to action. And your son willingly followed your lead and came to here to earth, lived a life in full obedience without sin, and went to the cross to die for me and everyone else. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great, great kindness that you have shown us how good you are and then you raised Jesus Christ back from the dead raised him to newness of life declared that we are justified through faith in him and so your righteousness was satisfied and we see an example of your goodness Thank you for being long-suffering for us, patient for us, bringing us to a place of life in your Son. And we come to commemorate that today in this communion service here at the Lord's Supper. Give thanks in Jesus' name. We said we have two elements. We'll have the men pass them, and you would take one as, as they come by and hold it, and we'll give you a signal and we'll partake together. Tom, would you lead us in prayer for the broken bread? Our precious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together here and to celebrate what you have done for us, for you have truly set us free. That you the ultimate price sacrificing your, your son that we can come to know you and to have that intimate relationship with you Father. by faith we can come into your presence as children of the living God we thank you for all that you do in our lives and we give you the glory and the praise in Jesus precious and wonderful name Amen Amen
Lord's Supper was born out of the Passover. When the Passover was instituted, it was that 10th plague of Egypt. It was right at the front door of deliverance. And the death angel would pass over when he saw the blood on the doorpost. And then the Passover was celebrated year after year after year. When we came to the Lord's Supper, Jesus took an element out of that. Unleavened bread, the matzah, broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup after the supper and blessed it and gave it to his disciples and Mike, if you'd lead us in prayer. Father God, we praise you and we thank you again for this time that we can come together as a body to just worship and praise you and give you thanks and to thank you for everything that you have done, what you have done on the cross and that these elements that we take in symbolization for what you have done, that we come to you as a and a holy union with your the Holy Spirit working through us as a, as a body, a church body out there showing your, your love, your light to this world who needs to see you and know you. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray. sit to partake unlike that first Passover where they stood ready to be delivered we sit not out of disrespect but because the fulfillment of our salvation has been accomplished in Jesus Christ let's drink to the new covenant in his blood going to ask the men if they would come back and collect your cups and Mike if you would come and lead us in singing. <laughs> 